so here's what here's what started this um, hobby horse for me. <clears throat> it's always been the idea that fiction is really important for Christians is always something that I kind of really nominally believed. Um, and I was trying to figure how much context, how much context to give. So I'm a huge MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe nerd. That's my shtick, right? Like any nerd has their, like their one bread and butter. Uh, Star Wars nerds, Harry Potter nerds, MCU nerds, you know, we're all kind of cut from the same cloth in that we can obsess over a, one series, one catalog of characters and obsess over them. And because of that obsession, you can appreciate the others, right? So mine, when I was a kid, was Harry Potter. All read all the Harry Potter books. I think most of them I read twice when I was a kid. I've seen every movie. Um, saw them all in theaters. So when I went away for basic training in AIT for the National Guard was when the eighth Harry Potter movie came out. So the last book got split up into two movies and it came out in theaters while I was away and I couldn't go see it. And by the time I graduated and got home, it wasn't in theaters anymore. And people would say, we need to, it would come on TV or people would like, we're going to have a Harry Potter watch party and we're going to watch all the movies or whatever. And I would say, I'm not watching that last movie unless I get to see it in theaters because every, all seven movies I had seen in theaters before and had even been to like midnight premieres of a lot of them. Like I was a kid of like, you know, 12, 13, however young I was. And me and my friends would go get dropped off at the movie theater at midnight and go watch the new Harry, the midnight premiere of the Harry Potter movie. And I just remember there being like lines of people because it, it wasn't, always at like midnight because by the time you got in there maybe 1 2 30 in the morning but you were in you got to watch it in theaters you know except for that last one and i remember uh they said well you'll never you'll just never see the movie then you'll never get to see this last movie and i'm like well i know how the story ends it's not that big of a deal and then when they started coming out with fantastic beasts and where to find them one of the promotional things that they did was movie theaters started showing all re-showing all the harry potter movies and Cross Lanes showed all of them, and I finally got to go with Abby to see the last one in theaters. Anyways, all I had to say, um, come back and say that everyone has like their one, all, all nerds have like their one thing that they're really nerdy about, right? And mine is the MCU. And I was watching one of the movies the last month or so ago, because um, ever since we've got Disney Plus now, we watch, we, would, we do a movie night once a week, and it's usually, it's like a kid movie for the kids or whatever, but... Sometimes I have a, I'll get a wild hair to start. I don't always finish them, but start a movie and watch it. Um, maybe in the background while it's doing something. And there is a scene in Infinity War. And I don't want to spoil too, too much for Josiah because of our marvelous podcast that we're going to do. I don't want to spoil too much of it for him. But... Um, there's a scene in Infinity War that anyone who's seen it will know what I'm talking about. There is a character who has been um, absent from battle for the majority of this really important battle that's taken place. Um, and the enemy has overrun the heroes. They're being overtaken. They can't win. They're overwhelmed. The battle is going to be a lost cause. And right at the most critical moment, this hero shows up in a miraculous way 
and just starts mopping the floor with people. Okay. And I watched that scene um, and thought, and it just, it clicked with me. That was, that character wasn't dead, but that was a resurrection. That was what I started calling at home, talking to Abby about it. That's a, that was like a micro resurrection that happened. And I just sort of got this flood of images in my, in my mind of all of these movies that are micro resurrections. Some of them, the whole premise of the whole plot is kind of rooted in a, in a light, a resurrection light story. So like in the black Panther movie, uh, there's a, one of the opening sequences is they have a, there's a fight, a fight scene. And, in, in Wakanda, in the country of Wakanda, they, the way they appoint their king is the pre, the, all the tribes gather together in the specific spot and they can either present a challenger to challenge the king or decide, or decide to not. And they challenge the king and they either fight to death or submission. And the victor of that fight is then crowned the, the king of Wakanda. So that's early on in the movie. That happens. Um, the king becomes the king, still trying to be super vague for Josiah. Later on in the movie, through a series of events, there's another challenge for the throne. The king is defeated, thrown from the waterfall, but you're only halfway into the movie, so you know, and you know he's in sequel, so you know he's not dead. And he shows back up again. Like, like events of the film have reached critical mass. There's a lot going on. And this micro-resurrection takes place where the king shows up just in time. And for whatever reason, thinking about, and you can, and there's, outside of the MCU, you can think of scenes like that in Lord of the Rings, you can think of scenes like that in Harry Potter, you can think of scenes like that in practically any great work of fiction, any great work of literature, or any great work of cinema. And you can see this theme of, of resurrection, and not only resurrection, but resurrection happening when things have reached critical mass and things are at their bleakest, right? And for whatever reason, watching that scene from Infinity War, it clicked. It I made the connection of, of the disciples, of Jesus had seemingly, from their perspective, been defeated. They had scattered. They were treasonous apostates, you know, all of their hope, everything that they had wanted was dead in the grave. Everything they believed in died with Jesus. And when things seemed to be at their worst, when the enemy seemed to have, to have the upper hand and defeat was imminent, Jesus comes back, right? And also made the connection that whatever your eschatology may be, wherever you may land, when Jesus comes back, it will be at the exact moment that he's needed to come back, right? What, like, what are, you, can, you could rap about eschatology with people all day, but whatever you believe, when Jesus comes back, it will be at the exact moment that he's needed, right? So when, when Gandalf says a wizard is never early or late, but arrives exactly when he's needed, like Jesus wasn't late when he showed up to raise Lazarus from the dead. He showed up when he needed to be there. And when Jesus comes back, it will not be too early. It won't be too late. It will be exactly when he's needed. 
So that was that was what started it for me. That thoughts were what started it for me. And as I thought more about the importance of fiction in reading life and and now in the fast forward of the 21st century, just in, in movies and in TV shows that are really great fiction, fiction is really a tool uh, that can be used, that is used to help you function throughout the day. To just day-to-day life, you can use fiction and not even not even realize it. And so when I did, I did a ride-along about this, and I was hoping that today we could get a little bit more in-depth and I have some people to bounce off of a little bit. Some of the importance of fiction is it can make reading much more enjoyable because fiction doesn't have, doesn't really have to be thought about. It can just be enjoyed, right? So you can talk about, uh, someone messaged me this week. They just listened to the ride along and they use the term high fiction, which would be something like Lord of the Rings, where there's a lot of a broad character of a, a lot, a big catalog of characters. There's a lot of like history and a lot of language and a lot like you can get, you, I mean, you could get chess deep in, Lord of the Rings, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can get chess deep into in Star Wars, right? Not so much with like a John Grisham novel who just writes what I call burner books. Mm-hmm. You just read it. You can just read it and you can just enjoy it. And so it's a, being able to read fiction is just a way to you can pick up a book and you can read it. You don't have to put a lot of thought into it. You can just enjoy the story. You can enjoy the dialogue. You can enjoy what's going on. And it's a way to keep your mind uh, disciplined in in the act of reading. Another reason that fiction is important is because it gives you sometimes fiction teaches you morality in a way that's easier to understand and grasp than really cold logic. So the example that I think of is uh, the boy that cried wolf. Right, like I, you could you could sit down with a with a kid and you could explain to them. You could say if you keep um, if you keep acting like you're hurt, if you keep crying like you're hurt, if you keep crying like your brother smacked you, eventually people are going to quit believing you and you're going to be unreliable. And that's not, you could do that. Or you could tell them the story of the little boy that cried wolf. And for that little kid, it's going to stick a lot quicker. So much so that when you are an adult, you can use the phrase, the boy who cried wolf, and everybody knows what you're talking about because they know that story, right? They know that that piece of fiction, that parable, whatever you want to call it, they know about the boy who cried wolf. So you, it sometimes communicates morality in a way that's that's easier to grasp and is more memorable. And I think that's echoed. I think that's shown to be true in the scriptures. And I think that's one reason why Jesus uses parables. Mm-hmm. So Jesus can use parables about a mustard seed that becomes a tree and the animals find shelter there and find shade there because that image sticks in your mind and you can carry that with you for the rest of your life and you don't have to have a, a a rigorous, systematic understanding of eschatology. You can just say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that was planted and grew up into a tree, mm-hmm. right? And the other benefit of that is you don't have to memorize large portions of scripture verbatim in order to tell the story of the unmerciful servant who his large debt was forgiven, and then he didn't forgive the smaller debt of his peer, okay? So... That bridges over to being able to read fiction makes you a better, makes it easier, makes you a better reader of scripture, okay? Because you can understand parables, but also because you can find things like a story arc or character development in scripture because you're so used to finding it as you read books or if you've watched movies. So for the MCU, uh, you can watch... All, there's like 24 of those Marvel movies at this point. I think there's like 23 or 24 movies right now. 
I can sit down and I can watch all of those movies in release date and I can focus in on Captain America, right? And I can see how does his, what does his story arc look like from the first Avenger all the way over to Endgame? What does that story arc look like? How does he change? How does he progress? How does he shift? You know, when he says this line in this movie, what's the context? What's going on? And how does that compare or contrast to what he says later in the series to show that he's grown or that he's changed? So if you're if you're practicing that, you get to do the same thing now with the story of David. So now, because I can I've practiced story arcs and I've and I've practiced character progression, when I read the story of David which, to, to be clear, is an actual historical story that actually happened. I believe it to actually be true because it's in the scriptures, right? But because I've read fiction and can be well-versed in, in fiction and kind of practice those muscles mentally, I can now practice, well, David at this stage of his, of his life, he says this whenever he's a shepherd, and then whenever he becomes a king, he says this, and so I can connect those dots to what he says uh, whenever he gets called out for his adultery, and then I can read the Psalms, and I can place the Psalms sort of in his in his character arc. So those are some those are just some some broad some broad reasons why I think fiction is really important for everybody. But specifically, I think it's really important that Christians be be you don't have to be a super nerd about it. But I think it's really important that Christians be able to read fiction that they enjoy for at least those, those few reasons. Well, I think it's important too, to differentiate between good fiction and bad fiction. Mm-hmm. Right. So stories that are good fiction are, are immediately known, you know, it when you read it immediately right. and the stories that, that really hook you into the, the, the storyline, um, aren't very common. Right. So one of the critiques against Christianity, things like the Noah's flood, is that we see um, stories of uh, mass floods in other cultures, right? Besides Mesopotamia, every every society seems to have a, a you know a worldwide flood story, and people wonder why. Well, Chesterton makes the point that well, that's such a good story. It would it would be absurd if there wasn't anyone else who copied it, right? Mm-hmm. When you have your your prototype, everyone wants to make copies of it if it's a good working prototype, and the same applies to fr- to fiction. And I think when when you look at stories that end poorly, um, there there is definitely a parallel between that and the Bible, right? We look at the Bible storyline and we see that there is uh, a congruent story from start to finish, and um, you have you know your heroes that fall, like you mentioned. You have your resurrection story, and you have an ending that satisfies the storyline. Mm-hmm. And people who have been able to see that, like C.S. Lewis with the Chronicles of Narnia, and um, people see that as more of an allegory or an abridgment of the Bible as a whole. But even he had no intention of doing that. And he said, and I had a quote here, he said, uh, some people seem to think that I began by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children, then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. This is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write in that way. It all began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. So you see that the Christian story, for good writers, finds its way 
into your fiction. And if and if it doesn't, you're 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 missing either a good ending, a good beginning, or a good a good body for your story because you're not recognizing the greatest story by which all other stories are referenced. So I think the thing I was thinking with what you're saying and with that is, well, why is that? So I, I can't really speak to books, mm-hmm. you know, but with film stuff, I mean, I've like tried to study that, you know, even for what I've done with videos, even if it's trying to make a sort of a narrative out of a day, like a wedding, you yeah. know, or a documentary, a mini documentary thing. So there's something in theater that would be like the story, 19 act, like parts to a play or something, mm-hmm. and it's broken multiple acts and separated then there's a guy named Dan Harmon that has a story circle that's like way easier to understand. It's like eight pieces, but it's basically like you go change return. And that's what a character does in any good story. Even like you're saying resurrection, they're, they're going through some, they're going, you know, that person goes, they go through something difficult that changes them. And then they return somewhat to a normal or balanced state, you know, that Mm -hmm. looks different ways, different stories. But why is it, that it's so easily recognized when there's something good. Why is there a pattern that is this? Because you could break anything good into this little circle. That's yeah. the reason he that that has been formulated. So, is is what is there about the way? Maybe not just that God created us, but that is built into the fall and the promises from it that have influenced the way that humanity like inherently perceived stories. Does that make sense? Like, I think that's what, what I keep hearing or thinking is that if it's just natural that we know a good story and it, not just that, but if every good story has a similar trajectory and arc or circle or pattern, whatever it is, why is that? Well, from the Christian perspective, it has to be related to God. Yeah. So if that is, then how maybe has that came to be? It's like the thing that I had, like, because it maybe wasn't the same for Adam as what we're talking about now. We're under yeah. a different state. I think um, for whatever reason, and I don't know all the implications of this, but um, I think God is a storyteller. So I first have heard this idea from Indy Wilson, and he's got a book. I'm reading through it right now, uh, Notes from a tilt world but he also has a talk called shoot what's it called something like reading i think it's called reading life it's funny because i picked it i listened to it the first when i first listened to it i thought it was going to be about like a life of reading like how to be a good reader Mm -hmm. and then but no it's about how to how to read life and how to read the story that you're in so god tells stories and he's the main character of the all the story they're all about him in some way so that is as big as the uh, the the story of of redemption in scripture right so that's as big as the fall and the fallen heroes that all point to to Christ the true hero and to his eventual return and and final conquering and, and final win um, it's that big and it's as small as you going to work right like there's a there's a story that's being told in your eight-hour shift and your 12-hour shift when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, when you wake up at night, when you go to bed in the morning. Um, there's a story that's being told there. Um, 
because God tells stories. And he talks about, in, uh, Wilson talks about in his lecture about he was mowing grass. I'm going to butcher this. So he was mowing grass, and so he had to move this rock or knocked over an anthill or something. And when he came back to that spot in the yard after he'd moved the rock or knocked over the anthill, the ants had found a, a beetle or something and were like dragging this beetle into the into the ground. And he said the story there is that the ants had to have a story to understand why their anthill got knocked over and they blamed the beetle. And so they took it out on the beetle because that was, in a, in a way, that was their that was the story. That was the narrative. That was the thing that they that they believed to be true. And he talks in, I don't remember if it's that talk or if it's um, if it's in his book about um, God speaks things into existence, right? Like God spoke everything into existence. Jesus is called the Word. Um, we're told in the New Testament that everything in the universe is held together by the Word of Christ's power. Um, in a debate he did with. Peter Singer, um, Lennox, um, talks about, um, John Lennox talks about how if you follow everything down to DNA, DNA is language, like it's words. So God speaks things into existence and is very literally telling a story. And so because it's baked into creation, because it's inescapable, the stories that he tells and has told and will tell about things like redemption and about things like resurrection. Those are the best stories because those are the stories that, um, that point to God. Those are, those are the things that give him the most glory, right? Like God up until this point has never been more glorified than the resurrection of Christ. That was the most glorifying thing to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And, and God through sending him has defeated death, has defeated the grave, has defeated hell, uh, the gates of hell are not going to be able to stand up against the church. Like that's the best story and it can't be recreated. Um, it can't be, but it can be imitated. And we know that imitation is the best um, form of flattery. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, I think that's why it's so easy to spot because, because God tells stories. We're naturally storytellers because we're made in his image and that's obviously true of like creation and, and men being fathers and, and all of that. You know, you're made in God's image, but we're natural storytellers. Love it or hate it, you're, you're a storyteller in some form or fashion. Well, even from, so if you look, at Adam would have maybe needed a different story. So this is where like my thought goes now, you know, from what you mm -hmm. said. We need a different story that we resonate with something different because of our state. Right. So Adam in a non-fallen state perhaps would have resonated with supplemental related stories of someone in need and then receiving what they need in the sense of he did not have a righteousness. He needed to be connected to God to keep, you know, obeying and receiving through communion with God sustenance. Mm -hmm. So that's different than us being apart from God that, um, you know, it's so we all recognize the need from Romans 1. Um, so if, if Paul says that, you know, everyone sees creation from general revelation, we can recognize God exists, right? If, if regardless of people would admit it or not, if we understand we're apart from God, if we can see sin within ourselves, you know, or whatnot, then this is really what we need is this story arc, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So um, in light of us recognizing a need, 
we need and long for reconciliation, regardless if we hate God or not. Right. There's still a longing for this. You know, even if at the same time you hate God, you're still a created being that though tainted in all aspects of your being would have the potential, I, I guess we would say for like a, a dueling, you know, where the second longing would also be for reconciliation for what you're truly designed or created for or mm -hmm. to whom really created and designed you. And so therefore when we see characters who go through this process and come out positively, then that is, we resonate with that. Maybe mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So because of who we are in light of the biblical story, you know, and if, and if, you know, God being a storyteller, all that stuff true too. Um, so stories are innate, but just the fact that we are, we maybe resonate with that, that person and we want that to be true perhaps mm -hmm. of us in a way that we would come out better, you know, or more positive through the struggle. That's like somewhat of a loose connection, but there has to be a reason that we all generally prefer yeah. that sort of, you know, method and or why those are the best structure stories. yeah and we recognize that implicit implicitly in ourselves from the storyline too so if you read a book or watch a movie and there's a villain and the villain does not get punished or the villain goes scot-free he gets mm -hmm. off mm -hmm. we recognize that's an anomaly that should not happen mm -hmm. it feels wrong it feels wrong yeah. and we feel that about ourselves too or at least we should yeah. you know that in our, in our sinful state we are recognizing that if we are not punished there's something wrong mm -hmm. with the world or if someone you know passes away for whatever reason or they die a, a violent death at a young age, that you you recognize that's not how things are supposed to happen. It draws you back to the storyline, to the meta narratives of scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even I've, I was thinking about this even just a couple of days ago in a tangential way. So so now talking about um, fiction. Right and, and and how fiction relates to our lives and, and why we should read it and why it's so important. Um, so because in the broader sense of stories, right to the side of that, somebody I don't know I saw something on Twitter about uh, men specifically don't like uh, stories about about love yourself as you are. Men really love stories about greatness, right? So they were talking specifically about um, this thread was talking specifically about about movies or about books about about greatness right so you think of uh if you've seen the movie 300 with gerard butler it's just like a machismo like it's a it's just a movie about greatness it's a, it's about sacrifice it's about it's about warriors you know it's just a man's man type of movie you know um or i think of movies like saving private ryan i don't know if you guys have seen it uh I watch it one. I, I watch it about once a year, and I cry at the end every time because there's. I'm going to spoil this movie for someone. I don't care. <laughs> it's there's, twenty years. It's, you should have seen it by now. <laughs> um, there's a at the end of the movie. So the movie opens up the old man in the grave at at uh, in Arlington, and then at the end of the movie you find out it was Ryan that they saved because the whole time you've believed that it was Captain John Williams. You believe it was Tom Hanks' character, and at the end you find out that John Williams dies to save Private Ryan. He gives the ultimate sacrifice to save this guy. And Private Ryan is at the is at John Williams' graveside just weeping. And he looks at his wife and he says, um, tell me, tell me I've lived a good life. 
tell me, tell me I've been a good man, right? Like that's the only thing that any man wants really at at his core is to be a good man, right? And so stories about good men and about men doing the hard things really resonate with, with men, okay? So the way that looks into what I'm talking about is stories, like real stories about men doing real great things resonate even more, right? Like Chuck Yeager was a bad dude. And if you read about some of the stuff that he did and the things that he accomplished, you're like, this is not, this is a real guy. This is a guy that actually flew a plane under the South Side Bridge in Charleston one day. Mm-hmm. You know, like this guy broke the sound barrier for the first time. Almost, the plane almost didn't make it. The night before, he had fallen or something and like broke his ribs and was so determined for that flight the next day, he didn't go to the doctor. He had a friend that was a veterinarian and was like, patch me up and give me some ibuprofen because I'm flying tomorrow. You know, like that's a, but that's a, Chuck Yeager's life is a story that's got highs, it's got lows, it's got redemption, it's got struggle, it's got fight, it's got, it's got greatness in it, you know? Or if you've read, um, the movie is October, Rocket Boys. Oh, yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. so I read Rocket Boys, which was a tome. It's like five or 600 pages. If you read that book about, Homer Hickam and his up and the way he grew up and and his relationship with his dad and his um the the way he just crushes it at the at the science fair, you know? That's a story of highs and lows and redemption and love and heartache and and all this stuff. That's a true story that someone actually lived and somebody actually went through. So the reason that fiction is so important is because you can have elements of I can write a story that's an element of of heartbreak that's an element of redemption that has a micro resurrection in it that has reconciliation is it that has uh, justice in it you know justice being served it's is in the story and the reason that it resonates is because those are the the true stories that we really love and the reason that those true stories about men like Chuck Yeager and about men like Homer Hickam and about the um Oh, I should know her name. I feel bad that I don't. But the lady that was behind um, NASA's moon mission, who was a WVU grad, I think. I can't remember her name. But there's like a team of black ladies that worked for NASA. The movie was Hidden Figures. Oh. I can't re- I should know her name by now because she's just an exemplary West Virginian, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but those those type of true stories, actual real stories. The re- so the reason that the fictional stories resonate with us is because they are smaller bite-sized versions, uh, they're light versions of the real stories, of the true stories about people, about with all of those themes in them. And the reason that those stories are so potent for us is because they are all microscopic stories of the true narrative, the greater narrative, which is God's story that he's telling. Is it Catherine? Katharina. Catherine Johnson. Josiah found it for me. Catherine Johnson. So all of those stories... It's sort of you could see kind of it kind of cascades. So the the fiction the fictional stories, like they can hit you in the gut pretty good, you know. So Saving Private Ryan, the reason that it hits me in the gut the way that it does is because when he's in the graveyard and he looks at his wife and he says, "Tell me that I've lived a good life. Tell me that I've been a good man." Like that's me. That's me at my core, right? Like I look at my I look at my wife. And I say, tell me that I've tell me that I'm a good husband. Tell me that I'm a good dad, right? Because somebody greater than Captain John Williams died for me to be able to be a good dad, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like Christ died, took my sins with him so that I could be a good dad. And that's what I that's what I want. I want to be a good man. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. So that's why that story resonates. That fictional story resonates with us because there's real stories about real great dads, about real great husbands, about real great men resonate with us because they are small, imperfect, microscopic stories of the best man, the God man, the the Christ. And that's why I think it's so important for Christians to be, and I'm not saying you've got to be a super nerd, you know, like like I was saying earlier, earlier about people that get chest deep and stuff like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. It's not the case. If you just read a stack of John Grisham books, you know, or you blow through um, some James Patterson novels or some Jack Ryan, you know, those are pretty good books. They're not great works of literature. They won't stand for another 7,500 years, you know. They're not going to be studying studying them in, in English lit classes in 200 years, you know, but they're, but they're good. But you should be reading stories of fiction because of all of those things that I've, that I've already mentioned. Um, let's see. So one of the, I, I, it's interesting because these are all extraordinary cases or stories mm-hmm. and it's interesting and maybe a reason that we, we like the thought of them so much is we all perceive ourselves to be so ordinary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then these are, these are people actually, living out things uh, to a significant degree. I, I think that's pretty interesting and impactful. And maybe for some reason that stands out. Yeah. And maybe that's why there's such gil- good illustrations too. I mean, if, if he, if in the movie, you know, Saving Private Ryan, if, if he really has died for this individual and that that's such an exemplary, you know, takes it to such a high degree, you know, level. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, Pretty wild. Yeah, <laughs> that just that's not ordinary or normal. But it, but but in the movie, you find out. So there's there's that moment. You know, throughout the movie, they talk about they're taking bets on what did John Williams do before he before he uh, was drafted, before he was commissioned to become a captain, and they all take bets on on what he did. And there's a crucial scene in the moment where um, they're kind of falling apart. They're kind of losing um, losing cohesion as a unit. And Tom Hanks turns around and asks, "What's the what's the pool? What's the you know what's the bet?" Um, and he says, "I was a school teacher." So like he wasn't an he wasn't an extraordinary mm-hmm. guy in that sense. He was just a school. He was just teaching kids how to. I think he was an English teacher actually. He was teaching kids how to read. That's pretty meta. He was teaching kids how to, <laughs> how to read stories. Uh, but he was just an English teacher. Um, and then he does the ultimate thing that the Lord even said of Himself: "There's no greater love." Mm-hmm. than to lay down your life for somebody. And so ordinary people, like Homer Hickam was just a dude out of coal country mm-hmm. at that point. You know, he's just a kid out of coal country who wanted to who wanted to work for NASA. And he was not good at he was not good at math in school. Mm-hmm. He was essentially self-taught in math and chemistry and all the stuff that he learned uh, through high school. He did independently on his own and they would go out to the um they'd go out and, and launch rockets and and was self-taught. So he was just Homer Hickam at one point in his life was just a kid, you know? And so we do perceive ourselves as ordinary and think I couldn't be a Homer Hickam. I couldn't be a Chuck Yeager. You know, Chuck Yeager was just a dude with broken ribs and then broke the sound barrier, you know? Um, I couldn't be that, but those were all, or, were all ordinary people. And I think that's why they resonate. And then, so because they were ordinary people, uh, David was a shepherd. 
Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't he wasn't anybody important. He was the weakest. He was the youngest. You know, and and God made him. Not only did God make him king over Israel, but it's out of his lineage that we get the Messiah. Mm-hmm. You know, Abraham was nobody. Abraham was just living in a pagan land, and it's from him, right? that we get all the promises that are now fulfilled in the New Testament from a- from Abraham. You know, we're all children of Abraham now. Um, and they just were so ordinary people, ordinary people doing, you could probably, you could probably word it this way. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things uh, resonate with us in such a way because when you read the true stories of scripture, it's God using ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And so this, this perceived ordinariness, we sometimes say, um, is the reason why I can't do all of these great things, which is true. In and of yourself, you can't. Uh, but but that doesn't mean that God won't use you um, to to do these these big extraordinary things. And in terms of bad fiction, it really flips the narrative. If you look at a lot of the the stories that are popular, the fiction that's popular today, even things like you know sultry as. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey that was so popular back then, it really flips the narrative. The end result is self-pleasure, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's not self-sacrifice. And you can you can look at those people who are ordinary and they recognize they're ordinary. David recognized that he was a humble man. Isaiah recognized that he was a man of unclean lips. Like you said, Abraham recognized that he was a small man, but God used the ordinary man to do extraordinary things. It was real. It's really remarkable. And when 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 we recognize that we are ordinary, there's really a lot more that we're able to do in the hands of God to become extraordinary. And it's those small incremental acts of faithfulness that really make a difference. Like, for instance, I was talking to a couple today, and they were telling me that they've been married for 65 years, right? He's just turned 90 years old. Hmm. And, you know, those are people that, you know, other than me today, nobody will remember them. You know, they were, but it was their faithfulness in their marriage that really told me a story that was a gospel story that God's love, you know, is everlasting. And that through the covenant of marriage, he can show the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the ordinary people that really are the big characters, you know, the big cast characters in the grand scheme of all things. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, there's, um, so Gordon Ramsay, I love watching Gordon Ramsay videos. I love watching um, Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmares and all that stuff for his personality. You mm-hmm. know, he is he is a ham on TV. But he really is if you if you've ever read I've only done like a cursory read of him. Um his story is of where he he didn't come from. He didn't come with a silver spoon. You know, he he grew up eating beans. And now he's got I don't know how many Michelin stars as a world-renowned chef. Like when you think chef, you think Chef Ramsay. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably couldn't name three more. Um but the guy that trained him, Marco Pierre White. Um <laughs> I watched a clip um, just, just as an aside, I watched a clip of him being interviewed for like 60 minutes or something. I think it's because Gordon Ramsay was up and coming, and so they wanted to know the guy that trained him. And they said, now we're told that you're the only man to have ever made Gordon Ramsay cry. You're the only person that's ever made Gordon Ramsay cry. And Marco Pierre White, he's just he's just a stone-cold killer. He said, I didn't make him cry. That was a decision that he made. <laughs> he chose to cry. So that's like the type of guy that he is. But he has a, he has a line where he says, perfection it's just a lot of little things done well, mm-hmm. right? So like if you're like if you're cooking a soup, if you cut your onions the wrong way, it's not going to be a good soup, you know. So sort of what you're saying, like it's the small, ordinary things that make people so memorable. It's the small, ordinary things that lead to 
a faithful marriage. It's the small ordinary. It's the small. It's the small details done really well mm-hmm. that make a really good story, which is incredible when you think about the fact that God is sovereign over the smallest minute details. Right, like not a hair falls from your head without the Lord knowing. Mm-hmm. So if perfection is little things done well, okay, if perfection is a bunch of little things done well, and if it's the small, ordinary tasks done in faith, obviously, but if it's the small, ordinary tasks that make, some, that make someone exemplary of character, if it's the small things that make a good story, then God, again, is just the best storyteller because when hair falls out of a character's head, it's, he's the one doing it. Mm-hmm. He's the one writing that in that story. It's just incredible to think about. I definitely have a, a question or two for, and somewhat of a conclusion. Mm-hmm. If you, unless you have other thoughts or no, I mean I can talk make. about this all day. So if we need to wrap it up, we need to do it because okay, <laughs> we'll be here for eight hours. So yeah, we could always continue it, you yeah. know, or think of something else. We'll but save that for the Patreon. That's, oh yeah, yeah that's right. Patreon, right? Uh, tune into Patreon for the yeah. twelve-hour version. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's great, right? So like mm-hmm. a couple of the points you made for how it helps that I like made note of. So it illustrates. So fiction helps add illustration, which adds clarity for you to better understand and remember things. So that's great. So you can, if you can track and recognize themes across a book or a series, then it helps you with reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are very good, positive things worthwhile. Sure. So where can someone start then? So let's say you've got, I've got two groups of people. Okay. One is a child, which may be, maybe more so as even parents with their child reading with their kids or impressing upon them what they're going to hand them. The kid's not going to go to books a million by book, mm-hmm. right? So the parents are going to kind of probably lead in that. So what books would you recommend or kind of suggest for children to start in with this as well as adults? Um, so with children, um, I would even back up just a little bit and say, start with your kids as young as you can. Don't wait until they're of reading age, right? Like we read to Solomon at night before bed, Abby reads to him throughout the day. Um, like start now. Start if your kid's crawling and doesn't talk. Like start now, if for no other reason than to to be in the habit of reading out loud to your kid, right? Mm-hmm. But where to start in terms of great fiction? I mean, you're not going to go wrong with Narnia. You're not going to go wrong. I don't think with uh, Lord of the Rings. You're not going to go wrong with Harry Potter. Um, any of those are the first three that come to my mind as far as books are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more out there. You could, if you wanted to do Lewis's space trilogy, like any any great work of f- fiction is a great place to start, um, especially reading out loud for a couple of reasons. Um, it's one way that kids just, just developmentally, that's just how they learn mm-hmm. um, as they're playing, as they're building blocks, as they're um, rolling around on the ground, as they're pooping their pants, whatever it is that they're doing, you read out loud to them and they're absorbing a lot more than you think. Um, and also it helps you as the parent kind of understand more of the story because you've read it out loud and, and you've heard it. But honestly, any, any great work of fiction is, a, is worth, I'm reading um, great expectations right now. Charles Dickinson's great expectations. It's probably, I've don't think I've ever read a book um, from Dickens before, uh, but by the time I finish it, I'll probably hand it off to Abby and say, read it, to, read this one to Solomon, mm-hmm. read it to the boys and just read it out loud. Anything, Anything that a college English literature professor would want you to read, 
read. That might be a good because it's not about them understanding rule. every word. It's more so building the habit. It it's, even sounds yeah, like build, build the habit for them. build the habit for yourself to learn to love fiction. Build the habit for your kids to love books overall, right? Because like I said earlier, part of reading fiction or a good burner book like John Grisham is that you can you can maintain the habit of reading, but it's something you can enjoy. You don't really have to put a lot of stock into. You don't really have to think about it. You know, it's something that you can. Um, you just read it, mm-hmm. and you comprehend what's going on, but you kind of shut your brain. You're not reading a systematic mm-hmm. theology, you know. Um, so, yeah, you're really kind of building the habit and building a habit for your kids to love books. Any, really, any great work of uh, any any great work of literature, I, just as a caution, this probably doesn't need to be said, but if you've not read it yourself, read it first to make sure it's there's nothing inappropriate in it. You, don't, you know, I'm not going to read um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to my four-year-old. Anyone that's read those books or seen those movies knows there's some stuff in there that I squirmed around in. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the other? So that was, what was so the other question? So that's kind of children. Yeah. Um, what about even like adults? Maybe it's not significantly different no, from I w- what you're I, saying. No, I would say not. Um, it, I think if you, I would, I would project that if you got a room of 100 people, 100 well-read people, and you ask them, what work of fiction should I read? They would probably say, you need to read Narnia and you need to read Lord of the Rings as a at least at a minimum. And then Harry Potter is a little bit more contemporary. Um, the benefit to Harry Potter, if you're an adult and you're new to fiction and you really want to get into it, is those books are uh, start off really easy. And they prog- and this also makes them really good for kids that are learning to read. Mm-hmm. They get progressively more difficult, progressively longer, and progressively darker. So the books grow with the characters. Mm-hmm. So like the first book, Harry is 11, and every year he gets older. And J.K. Rowling knew that every year her audience would be older because she knew she was primarily writing to children. So by the time he gets to the age of 17, he on the seventh book, it's more adult, not in terms of erotic, but deeper themes and, and, and darker themes. Start there because if for no other reason you could knock out the first three books, the next thing you know you're halfway through the series because you're reading at an 11-year-old level, a 12-year-old level, a 13-year-old level, you could just you could just knock it out. I would I would recommend people to start with Harry Potter if for no other reason than to say that they're probably the easiest to read, hmm. starting out at least. And then, like I said, they progressively get, and get longer you, and more difficult. Do you even just do like a chapter a night or something and just work through stuff so with the kids? I recently read um, Doug Wilson's Plotactivity, which is not a work of fiction, but about how to plot and how to be faithful and things. And he made a point that I think I knew but had never like had it put put to me in this way is that if you have a, a project that you want to do, um, and it's obviously not for school or for work, there's not a deadline, there's no reason to say it has to be done by this certain date, right? So if you say, I want to read the whole Harry Potter series, and if you can commit to a chapter a night before you go to bed or a chapter in the afternoon, whatever it is, like read that chapter and be content, and know that that you you read your chapter. Eventually, if you keep at that pace, you're going to have read the book. You're going to have read the series. You know. Now he applies it to house projects and writing projects and other things like that. But I I'm hesitant to to recommend any specific number just because if people read at different paces and people can can handle more. But if you can handle a chapter, just go out and buy the first, and you don't own it. 
buy the first one on what if you want paperback, hardback, however you want it. Buy the first one and read the first chapter, and then the next day read the second chapter, and then just read at a chapter at a time. And it should be with what goes without saying that you know our our main task should be to to follow back to the Bible. So some of the greatest fiction is in the Bible. So I, I don't have any children, but I'm sure Anthony can attest to this that the parables of Jesus are very understandable for kids, mm-hmm. and they have a, a application obviously for for adults, mm-hmm. right? So Spurgeon said, "Travel." Or visit many good books, but live in the Bible. So when, when that should be our foundation, and from outside that, we would bring in good books. Um, and I would also encourage use different apps like Goodreads. Find good reviews on books. Don't waste your time going through a book that has a one star review. You just wasted your time. There's so many good books out there. You don't need to waste your time on poorly written, awful trash. No. Yeah, I think that's really good because I because I like I said earlier. One of the reasons that good fiction is important is because it makes you a better reader of the scriptures. Um, some people don't. Some people don't like fiction, um, and I don't want to dog on people that don't. You know, and sometimes in in reformed circles and people that are uh, that are kind of heady, that are kind of well read, that are kind of in, um, well, I don't really want to say the word informed, but for lack of a better term, people that are more informed that like to read. If you're not a fiction reader, if you've not read Narnia, if you've not read Lord of the Rings, you can kind of feel inferior. I'll be up front and say I've not read them. I've not read the Lord of the Rings. I've not read Narnia. You know, I've never seen a Star Wars movie. You know, those are three strikes in, in the nerd community, you know. Um, but uh, the, ult- the ultimate goal is to, is to be a better read- reader of scriptures, uh, not for the scripture's sake, but because Christ said of himself that if you search the scriptures, you'll find him. Mm-hmm. And so the better that we understand the scriptures, this is something um, I don't want to be uh, praying in public here, but just as way of, by way of application, we read um, we read a chapter of scripture before dinner in the evenings at our house when we're able, not always, we're not consistent with it all the time, but we try to read a chapter. Um, and one of the things that I pray before the meal is that the Lord would help us to understand the scriptures because the scriptures help us to understand the Christ, and as we better understand the Christ, we better understand the Father. And so, read these great works of fiction, and and love them, and enjoy them as tools to better understand the Bible, but also as as things that you just can enjoy. You know, um, love them and enjoy them, and read them and appreciate them, but appreciate them in so far as they help you to be a better Bible reader. And to be a better Bible reader, not because you want to be able to trounce somebody in a debate, you know, or because you want to um, just go wreak havoc on people's worldviews, but because you want to be, you want to be faithful to the scriptures. Because when you're faithful to the scriptures, you're faithful to you're faithful to your king. Yeah, let the scriptures wreak havoc on your world. Yeah, yeah, do that. And, and and the end goal, of course, should not be to close the book, to end the saga, and say, "Man, that was a nice story," right? Like right. you said, it should be to call us back and say, "Wow, I understand, you know, the origin create creation account better. I understand why Jesus walked in the culture he did. I understand all the stories he told the people. It should call us back to a scriptural account." Yeah, I think that's all really good. Great. Well, yeah. Let's go read some fiction. Yeah. <laughs> to- what's the, is it? Totally, totally legge. Yeah. yeah. Totally legge, guys. <laughs>